0: Wildwood Community Church exists to glorify God by connecting people to Christ, His worship, His community, and His mission. To contact us or for more information, see our website at wildwoodchurch.org. My name is uh, Kevin Bradford, I'm the Global Outreach Coordinator here at Wildwood. Uh, You might notice that both Bruce and Mark are not with us this morning. They're with uh, a lot of the men of of our body at Pine Cove at the retreat down there. Hope that they're enjoying good weather like we'll have today. Um, you know, it's, it's interesting. As we uh, look at Time Magazine, uh, recent edition, one of the recent editions that came out, it has, uh, like every other year, the man of the year. And it, did, it took 88 years for this to happen, but it finally happened this year, that the person of the year selected by Time Magazine was a Christian doing Christian things. I don't know if you got that copy, but it's uh, the person on the, the cover of mine was Dr. Jerry Brown, who's a believer from Liberia. Uh, other copies uh, had Dr. Kent Brantley, uh, also one of the people that were working to combat Ebola in these West African countries. Um, you know, the, the recognition the, actually, the stated recognition goes to the most newsworthy person uh, of the year. But it's really quite an honor. It's almost an honor along the lines of the Nobel Prize. Uh, So when Time Magazine recognizes somebody and they've recognized, you know, politicians and popes and all sorts of different people, but never a Christian that's doing Christian things, and yet you'd have to say that that's really the motivation in uh, what's happened here. Uh, It's incredible to think about. You you know about Ebola. 70% of the people that contracted uh, this particular strain have died. Uh, it, the outbreak uh, took off in the midst of a West African summer, uh, countries near the equator, and these people had to dress, you know, from head to toe with this protective gear that was almost suffocating, uh, but just so that they wouldn't contract the, the same disease. Uh, and yet, they worked hours and hours in these suits, uh, knowing that the people that they were treating, uh, in many cases, only had days, if if not hours, to live. Just horrendous, horrendous circumstances, primitive, lack of supplies, uh, just on and on and on. And yet, they showed up month after month after month. And in the case of somebody like Dr. Brantley, uh, somebody that chose to live there, that went there specifically to be able to help in a circumstance like this. Well, the other interesting thing about Dr. Brantley is that uh, he was the first Ebola patient here in the United States. You, You probably recall that, that there was a little bit of Uh, Debate about that, whether or not he should come back to the States or not, Uh, and yet he did. But just before he left West Africa, uh, he received a vial of experimental uh, serum that would uh, potentially cure or help him get through Ebola. But the problem was there was one vial, and and, uh, when it came to Kent, this, this father of two, he decided that he didn't want to keep it, but he passed it on to one of his colleagues so that she could have it. So uh, Kent Brantley in a number of different ways uh, demonstrates for us the the kind of person that's thinking about others, the person that's willing to sacrifice, that's willing to uh, engage in incredible hardships so that others can not only live but also have a a view of what Christ and what God is like. Well, Time Magazine, of course, has, has gone through some transition of the year. It used to be the Man of the Year and then it became the Person of the Year, occasionally People of the Year. But I'd like to take a few moments with you this morning and think about what it would mean to be the church of the year. Now, I know that Time Magazine is not going to make that recognition, but just, just play with me for a little bit and think about what would be necessary for a church to be known as the church of the year. Now, probably a couple of different things are coming to mind, but I'd, I'd like to suggest that there are probably at least two prerequisites, two basic conditions that would have to characterize that church uh, for them to be recognized, maybe not by Time Magazine or court of public opinion, but that God has established, standards that He has established that churches need to aspire to. You'll take your Bibles out and open to the book of Genesis. We'll look at these two principles, looking at a passage that we explored just a couple weeks ago in Genesis chapter 12. Genesis 12 starts with the call of Abraham. It's it's an interesting passage. It's a pivot in the book of Genesis actually because uh, the first 11 chapters, it's as if Moses is racing through different centuries and and pulling out an episode here or there and telling a few stories. But then he zooms in in chapter 12 to focus on the family of Abraham and he stays there for the rest of the book. So the next uh, 38 chapters, He's focusing on one family, Abraham and his descendants. Uh, You could argue that these verses, one through three, uh, form the most important passage of the book of Genesis. Uh, It's the the tie that draws them all together, that makes sense of the rest of it. It's not just a random collection of stories about these patriarchs, uh, but that there is a central theme. And we see that theme here uh, in these three verses. Now, I want to read the verses and and ask that you uh, follow with me, but also uh, look to pick up on some of these themes. The Lord said to Abram, Go forth from your country and from your relatives and from your father's house to the land which I will show you. And I will make you a great nation, and I will bless you and make your name great, and so you shall be a blessing. And I will bless those who bless you, And the one who curses you, I will curse. And in you, all the families of the earth will be blessed. I don't know if you picked up on it, but there is a common word. There's a word that's used more frequently than others in these three verses. Did you see it there? It's the word bless. And actually, there's an interesting alternation because it goes from God blessing Abraham to Abraham blessing others. So it goes back and forth that way. And at the end of verse 2, it actually says, uh, it's a command to Abraham to be a blessing, to bless others. So it's not just a back and forth, but there's uh, an exhortation for Abraham to take that upon himself, to to be a blessing to others. Now you should be asking the question about now, what does it mean to bless? I know that all of us have kind of an idea of what it means to bless. It's more, obviously, than saying God bless you after somebody sneezes. Uh, But blessing also, I think, has been a little bit co-opted. People have kind of an idea in mind today what it means. Um, And probably that idea is that you're going to be nice, that you're going to be friendly to other people, that you're going to uh, not cause problems. Uh, If you're a parent, you go to the parent-teacher conference and. A teacher may say, "Uh, little Johnny is such a blessing. Uh, Well, it probably means that he doesn't fight with other students and he doesn't chew on his crayons and and on and on. Uh, But blessing obviously is a lot more than that. It's more than just being nice to other people or being other-centered. We need to go back and and think about how the word blessing has already been used in the book of Genesis and begin to form a, a biblical definition of the term. If we were to go back to the creation account of the first couple chapters, uh, we would see that the word "bless" is actually used on several different occasions. When the animals, the animal kingdom was created, it says that God blessed them. And when Adam and Eve were created, also God blessed them. When the seventh day of of creation came, God blessed that period as well. And as you, you begin to examine those passages along with others in the scripture, uh, it's obvious that blessing has something to do with uh, ex- of getting to know God, uh, sensing some of his goodness, the life that comes from God, the fruitfulness that comes from that. So blessing is, is tied up closely to the character of God. It's not just somebody that's being good and may get praise or recognition for that, but it's it's the blessing somebody else is hoping that God's presence will invade their life, God's goodness will overshadow their circumstances. Desiring that, wishing that, working for that is what we know as being a blessing to others. Now, As Christians we know that uh, the goodness of God is most distinctly revealed in the person of Jesus Christ. So when we think about blessing somebody else, actually uh, the supreme blessing that we could offer somebody is that they would know God through Jesus, through trusting in Jesus for their salvation. We're not going to get there with Abraham, but that's just something to keep in mind now maybe uh, it may be helpful to think of a distinction between the popular definition and the biblical one. Uh, looking at the life of Louis Zemperini I don't know how many people here have, have seen the movie unbroken It's, it's a great film recommended it. it's It's an inspiring film this This story of a World War II pilot who was shot down over the Pacific uh, after several weeks uh, in the ocean was Rescued, as it were, by the Japanese and taken to a prisoner of war camp where he encountered uh, even more uh, difficulties and, and tribulations. So to see his determination, how he overcame these obstacles, it, it truly is an inspiration. But it's interesting that probably for lack of time, the Angelina Jolie, the director, was not able to get into the what I think is the really interesting part of his life. I don't know if you know this, but uh, after the war... Zamparini went back to the States, and probably suffering post-traumatic stress, uh, he became an alcoholic. And he also, he had started a business at one point, which failed, he got married, but almost destroyed that as well, as he was verbally abusive to his, his wife. And it was only in 1949, four years after the war, after the time depicted in this film, that Zamperini attended a Billy Graham crusade in Los Angeles. And there he discovered one thing that he could not do. He discovered that he could not save himself. He was a sinner, a sinner in need of help, in need of the sacrifice offered to him through Jesus Christ. He became a Christian at that time. And after his trusting in Christ, that he resolved to return to Japan and to meet up with his tormentors and to be a blessing. He was already an inspiration to, to many people. But at that point, he was able to lead other people into contact with God and, and help to be a blessing in their life. So that's the, that's the contrast that I think we need to keep in mind. And the first of these two characteristics that would, should characterize our church and any church that wants to be pleasing to God would that they would seek to bless the people of their community, people in this body, people in this community, and people around the world leading people to come closer to God, to have this true knowledge of what God is like and what he offers to us through Jesus. The second characteristic we also see in this passage, in um, the first few verses, in fact, there's a sequence, it's almost like a domino effect, that um, the first command that we see is not to bless, but it's actually for Abraham to go forth from your country. And as Abraham hears this from the Lord, considers what it means in his own circumstances to leave Ur and go to some unknown land, uh, there were three things that God promised that would be a result of his obedience. So, going forth is the command, and as a result, God promised a great nation, blessing for him, and a great name. And I'm sure Abraham was was trying to think, "Is is this a good bargain? Going forth was a big deal. It was a step of faith into the unknown. Uh, was God this new God to him? Uh, was he able to take care of his needs if he was going to be distant from his family and from his his uh, homeland? And yet God says, Great nation, blessings, a great name. And if we're not careful, we're we're inclined to put a period at that point in the call. To think, well, that's that's great. God promised these things to Abraham, praise the Lord for that. But it's not a period, it's a the semicolon here, and the semicolon says that there's something as a result, as a result of getting these blessings from God, Abraham himself would be placed in a position where he could bless other people. You see the sequence, it's go, God promises several things so that you can bless, so Abraham was blessed in order to be a blessing for other people. God gives us favorable circumstances many times just so that we can share of our material things or health or or opportunities, whatever, with other people and be a blessing in their lives. But it's interesting that this sequence also goes on because there's the second command to be a blessing, and as a result of the second command to be a blessing, there's also three things that the Lord promises. So the the passage continues, it says, be a blessing, and as a result, God will bless those who bless Abraham, curse those who curse him, and all the families of the earth will be blessed. So in this sequence, actually we get to the bottom line, the, actually the impact statement of the call of Abraham, that through Abraham, all the families of the earth will be reached, will be reached with some knowledge of, of, of God. Now Abraham himself did not do that, Alone. Uh, and some people think about that and say, well, no, that's just a kind of a prophetic word. It's, it's some distant generation, uh, future generation. There have to be many generations, and eventually the Messiah will come. And through the Messiah, Jesus, uh, that many countries will have knowledge of God and they'll come to him, and there'll be people gathered around the throne in the future because of the church. But for Abraham, no, it really wasn't a, a, uh, something that he needed to be concerned about. Well, I I don't want to take anything away from the the thought that we are participants in this, that the church has an activity to to fulfill and that people are ultimately blessed in Jesus Christ because he is the supreme blessing that God offers. But I also think that Abraham understood that he needed to do something. And if we had time this morning, I would love to go through dozens and dozens of examples of Abraham and other Israelites Trying to be a blessing to people outside of Israel, and hundreds of examples of the Lord expressing his interest in the nations uh, to other people. But let's just look at a a couple of these passages. Um, If we could go to Genesis chapter 1, back in the creation account, and this incredible statement here, God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. And God blessed them and said to them, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. Well, what does it mean to be created in the image of God? I'm not sure I have uh, the full grasp of what that means, but I do know one thing, that it, it makes us different than the animals. We have a unique potential to know God that the animals don't. We have a unique potential to reveal God in a way that the animals cannot after the fall it gets complicated because uh, we're not a really good mirror of what god looks like after the fall but we still have that potential within us and as jesus christ restores our character and makes it possible uh, to, to patch over some of the the, the, the smudges or the, the the breaks in our mirror he can make us into a better image bearers of uh, of god but we are created with this, this incredible potential to reflect to other people a little bit of what God looks like. Not looks like visually, but what he's like in his character. But that's not all that the verse says. It says that we are created with this, this great potential, and then the very next thing is that he tells Adam and Eve, be fruitful and fill the earth. So we see here the same two things that Abraham was confronted with. Be concerned about the depth of your relationship, but also the breadth of God's program. Those are the two aspects that we as a church need to be concerned with, that we seek to be deep with Jesus Christ, that we're faithful followers, that we study his word, that we are in fellowship with one another. But it's not just what we do to deepen our walk. There's the breadth aspect as well. We need to be concerned was fulfilling this plan that God has laid out for Abraham, for all of us really through, Abraham, through uh, Adam and Eve. Just another example here, when we look at uh, Genesis 11 and um, the Tower of Babel, you, you know the account, uh, I hope, uh, Tower of Babel, the people that were rebellious against God probably with arrogance and they decided that they would uh, stop in one particular place, build this tower, make a name for themselves. Uh, so. Several, several problems going on at this point. And then the Lord intervenes, multiplies the languages. They don't understand one another. They decide we're gonna stop building and also we're gonna spread out. And these verses, it tells us three times. Uh, so the Lord scattered them from abro- abroad from there over the face of the whole earth. They stopped building the city. The name was called Babel because the Lord confused the language, the language of the whole earth. And from there, the Lord scattered them abroad over the face of the whole earth. So there's the the aspect of deepening their attention to God, Uh, they they stopped a sinful activity, so they were led a little bit closer to, to honoring God, but also they were motivated to get back to filling the earth, to spreading out and having the breadth of God's program as he had designed in Genesis chapter one. When you, when you get to Abraham in the very next chapter, in chapter 12, it's, it's, there's a lot of irony involved actually because you think of what Abraham was promised, the very same things that the people at, at Babel, that they wanted, they wanted to make a name for themselves and, and it's as if God's saying to Abraham, you wanna see a great name, I'm gonna, I'm gonna give this guy a great name. And the people at Babel, maybe they wanted security from a central location, the tower, and God's probably laughing at that thinking, security, a tower, not even a city. We're going to make a great nation out of this old man, Abraham. So, God was giving to Abraham the same things that the people at Babel wanted and giving to him graciously because he had obeyed his prior command to go. There's a principle in there for all of us. uh, It takes a step of faith sometimes to seek first the kingdom of God. But if you do that… If you put God's plans in first place in your life, he will supply the things that we need and want. So Abraham was seeing that and and he became a blessing for many other people in a way which, uh, we won't go into the details today, but the same commission was passed on to his uh, offspring. We can see in Genesis chapter 26, for example, that Isaac, his son, I will multiply your descendants, Isaac, as the stars of heaven, and I will give your descendants all these lands, and by your descendants, all the nations of the earth shall be blessed. It's pretty clear that it's a a direct parallel with what Abraham had been given. So Isaac had the same commission. Jacob as well, chapter 28. Your descendants also will be like the dust of the earth, and you will spread out to the west and to the east, to the north and to the south, and in you and in your descendants, all the families of the earth shall be blessed. So, there's both the depth of blessing and the breadth of God's program. It's interesting in this last verse that you see that uh, it says, in you and in your descendants. So, it wasn't just some future date, some eventual generation will be the blessing for the whole earth, but in you, Jacob, And Jacob's quite a character. So in you, Jacob, blessings will go out and primarily this knowledge of God. I think it's clear through these and and many other passages that we could look at that God is not interested in being a tribal God. God is not interested in being known as as only the God of the Israelites. Abraham and probably the the inhabitants of Canaan probably knew of other gods like that. It's just a, a localized God. But the God, the true God of Israel would be the God of gods, the King of kings, the Lord of lords over all the world. And for that to happen, for that to be his reputation, it was necessary for people to spread out and to reveal God in all parts of the world. Uh, we participate participated in the same program today. Uh, we can look at the promises in uh, Genesis and we can think about uh, what happened with With Abraham, with Isaac, with Jacob and others, but there's also a promise that we see for ourselves, uh, for example, in the Great Commission passage, Matthew 28. When you you look at the Great Commission, it's interesting, it's almost uh, an echo of what God has told Abraham. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all the nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit and teaching them to observe all that I commanded you, and lo... I'm with you always, even to the end of the age. Go, make disciples all the lands." It doesn't say bless, but you can make some association there. Blessing people leads them to a knowledge of God. A disciple is one that is seeking God, seeking to be more and more like Jesus Christ. So, I think that the great commission that we have is, is really a reflection of the commission that Abraham had received many centuries prior. Now, when I think about how we're doing, you know, we're in this this contest, as it were, uh, church of the year, we wanted to be pleasing to God. We need both depth and breadth. I think that North American Christians, on the whole, and I know there's a lot of exceptions, but on the whole, I think that we do pretty good with respect to the depth question, and not quite as good with respect to the breadth. Why do I say that? One reason is what other people in the world tell us, people outside of the Christian church. I got an email this this week from a former student of mine who was working in Niamey, the capital of Niger, uh, in Saharan Africa, central Sahara Africa. If you think of Timbuktu, it's, it's close. Uh, it's right there, it's a it's very, unfor- very forgettable place, probably. But he's there, and he's been working there for several years, and uh, this past week, uh, a large group of Muslim extremists came in to that city and others and burned to the ground 70 different churches, including the two that uh, my friend Wallace was working with. The accusation of these extremists was this, that you, Christians, serve the God of the French, We know that's not true. We we know that it's the the God of all, the God of the universe, the God of all mankind. But for them, they saw something that was from the West, something that was very limited, something not worthy to be followed. When we lived for a short time and a few years in in the Middle East, uh, our family would hear that from time to time from people there, that you Christians serve the God of North America. Everybody in North America is a Christian in their concept, so the God of North America must not be anything really all that good and very localized, almost a tribal deity. So we could do better with this this concept of extending the breadth of God's program, being about the expansion of his kingdom in all places. Now, I do hear from time to time people that will tell me, well, my, uh, my, my ministry here in Norman is important, and I've heard of a lot of great ministries. There's a lot of great things that are going on here. But sometimes I'm suspicious that it may be, you know, I know I should be doing more for, to reach the nations, but I just, I'm not. If you're doing both, great. But if you're not doing something to expand God's program beyond your immediate circle of family or friends, be thinking about it. It's not the same in all places in the world. I could, I could quote statistics for you about, for example, a country like Turkey, um, 1960, 10 believers in the entire country. Today, approximately 7,000, praise the Lord, 7,000, but in a country of 70 million people, if it was the same proportion here, we'd have 12 believers in all of Norman. So it, it's just, it's not quite the same. Now, I had a chance to visit Turkey last, uh, last summer. It was, it was kind of one of those bucket list items that, you know, I just had to, wanted to go do it, and I had two goals in mind. Uh, I wanted to see the ruins of Ephesus, and I also wanted to meet a Turkish believer. I didn't know any Turkish believers. I didn't have anything planned, uh, and I wasn't going to go hunt one down. Uh, but I was just, I thought it would be cool if I could go, if I could meet a Turkish believer. I knew that there were so few. On my last day in Istanbul, just as I was getting ready to leave, um, I got to the airport a little bit early, and before going through the checkpoint for security, I I thought, well, I'll I'll sit over here on this bench and have a little quiet time. And um, went over, sat down, propped up my Bible on top of my suitcase, and then just a little while later, a man came and sat next to me, and he asked me, do you mind if I smoke? Go right ahead. I don't mind at all. Well, after just a couple minutes more, he uh, asked me another question. He said, "Uh, what is it that you're reading? God's holy word. After another short pause, are you a believer? Yes, I'm a believer in Jesus Christ. So am I. And The goosebumps, you know, they started about then. It's like, wow, I'm just a few minutes from leaving this country, and and God brings somebody to me like this. And and to be be frank, I was a little bit skeptical. I was thinking, you know, secret police, panhandler, you know, what's going on here, I don't know. But we had a chance to talk for over an hour, and as we exchanged different ideas, and talking about what life is like in Turkey, and what life is like here, and going back and forth, he's a a believer, He's he's a brother in Christ, no doubt. And as it came closer to my departure time, I had to, had to go through security, and I thought, what's next for him? And I began thinking, so I wonder if he has a Bible. So I brought that up, and he said, he reached his coat pocket, and he pulled out a Gideon New Testament. Oh, great, he's got access to the Bible. So we talked just another minute, and I said, what about fellowship? Do you have the opportunity to get together with other believers from time to time? And he uh, also reached in his pocket and he pulled out his wallet. And out of his wallet, he pulled out a three-by-five card, which I saw had three verses handwritten on them. And the basic answer was no, he didn't have regular fellowship with other believers. But a few months before, there was another Christian that he had met there at the airport who had written out those verses to encourage him. Our brother Omar has been a believer for 13 years and his fellowship is to go to the airport in the hopes that perhaps that day he'll meet a Christian and to be able to sit down and pray and have some fellowship. So, there are tremendous needs, tremendous needs worldwide. Sometimes there's no believers at all to be found. In other places, there are believers that are in desperate need of follow-up or, or some type of fellowship. We as a church, we as a church need to be about God's kingdom, in every place, not just in Norman. When I think about what we could be doing, I, I, lots of ideas come to mind, and I don't know about you, but there's opportunities for people to go on a short-term missions trip. There are people that are form, teams that are forming right now to go to Latvia and to Brazil, to Nicaragua. That may be of interest to somebody. Uh, I also know that there's a, a great missions conference at the end of this year. In December, in St. Louis, there'll be a Urbana Missions Conference that university sponsors. Uh, tens of uh, 18,000 people, I think, is what expected, uh, will go to this conference. That may be of interest to a few people. Uh, if you do have interest, you could talk to Chris Gorey, uh, the university Director here at OU. I'm sure that he'd love to get you in touch, help you uh, go through the registration of that process. But I'd like to think about maybe a couple applications that all of us could do. Mission really is really, it's a team sport, and if we don't all embrace this, uh, it's not going to happen the way that it could or should. So, I'd like to think about two applications that I would encourage everyone here to be thinking about. The, the first of these is the thought of adopting a missionary. Now, I'm not thinking of adopting into your family to live with you, but adopting in the sense of, of getting to know a missionary and trying to encourage them. In fact, we formed this acronym KEEP. The first thing would be to just to know something about the missionary, their circumstances, their ministry, their family. The first E is the E of encouraging. Every once in a while, send them an email, uh, get in contact. The second E is to engage. If they happen to be coming through Norman, invite them over for dinner, Uh, get to know them a little bit better. And the P is to pray. Praying is something that we can do quite frequently, and I hope that every family here, every individual, but certainly every mom or dad will incorporate that into your your family routine, that your son and daughter will grow up with this experience of every week just taking a few minutes and remembering the McGraths or Abbey Coppage or the Horns or whoever it may be. Pick a missionary. We do have some some albums in the Gathering Hall here and a couple different places in the church uh, pass by there, it's loose leaf, so if you see a missionary that you'd like to get to know a little bit better, pull it out, and uh, you can take that, that person home and, and get to know them, and, and the adoption's done, basically, a lot easier than some other adoptions. The second thing that may be even more important than to adopt a missionary is to adopt a mission mindset. Now, what I mean by that, it's not... Uh, Get like Abraham and pack up your bags and move to some distant land. I'm not expecting that. But it is to have the same attitude of, Lord, where do you want me? What do you want me to be doing? If all of us have that same attitude, that same willingness to follow the Lord, to do whatever he says, I'm sure that our church will make a great difference in this generation, not just in Norman, not just Oklahoma or the the U.S., but around the world. You may not be gifted to become a medical missionary like Kent Brantley, but God has given you other talents, other gifts, other abilities that you can put to use in service for him. You may never step foot in the continent of Africa, but God has a special place for you to serve him. Maybe in Norman for a while, it could be some other place, after this. And you may not ever combat Ebola or run the risk of losing your life in service of whatever kind, but God will open before you doors that you should go through, opportunities that you should embrace. And I hope that you'll have the same willingness that we see in Dr. Brantley, that we see in Abraham, that we see in people all around the world in our church. I don't know about Church of the Year. I don't know whether Wildwood will ever be recognized that way. But I do know that God will look at each one of us, and He's looking for people that will please Him by blessing others and seeking to promote His kingdom worldwide. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we give You thanks for Your Word and the encouragement that it is to look at people not all that different from us, weak and failing and yet you use them, you use them for your glory and to expand your kingdom around the world. We pray that we might have a part in that as well. We ask it in Jesus' name.